Hi, I'm Louisa Boa-Taylor, and this is Future Food, where food trends and new technologies converge. There is a systemic change occurring in our food system. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, investors, chefs, farmers, and others defining that future. So I'm shaking things up here a bit of Future Food, and I'm really excited to announce that I've partnered with Danielle Gould from Food and Tech Connect to host deep discussions about the future of our food system. And we're going to be bringing those conversations to the Future Food podcast. So you can expect a range of different formats from fireside chats with founders to book clubs with various different authors. And the podcast this week is our news review. So the next two voices you will hear will be mine and Danielle's and we'll be talking a bit about the session you should expect to hear today. Hi Louisa, hi everyone. So every Friday we are bringing together leading journalists and writers to discuss the week's top food tech, ag tech and food systems innovation news on Clubhouse. This week we chatted with an incredible group of journalists including Kim Severson from the New York Times, Chloe Sorvino from Forbes, Twilight Greenaway from Civil Eats, Megan Poinsky from Food Dive, Kate Cox from The Counter, Kathy Airway from New York Magazine, Kristen Howley, who is an author of Expedite and a freelance writer for a number of different publications, Monica Waitress from Food Business News, Brett Anderson from The New York Times, Sonali Figueres from Green Queen, Leah Douglas from the the Food and Environment Reporting Network, Jennifer Marston from The Spoon, Errol Schweitzer from Forbes and The Checkout, and Elaine Watson from New Food Navigator. It really was quite the crew, and we just had the most interesting conversation, didn't we? We did. We we talked about so many different things. We started off with a, a really big conversation around alternative proteins. There are just so many headlines on this topic every week. I kick things off by talking about the new $200 million funding round for Eat Just, There was also a survey that they've put out talking about consumer demand for cultivated meats and interest in it. And then we got some, you know, contrarian views from different journalists who um, offered a more critical eye on the space. It was such a great conversation. It's honestly one of the more nuanced conversations that I've heard in the media. There so often so many of the articles out there are lionizing these the the companies in the alternative and cellular ag space. And this discussion really dug into what are the actual environmental and ethical implications? What are potential health implications? Do people actually want to be eating these foods? So it was a really meaty uh, discussion (laughs) and one that I think everyone will enjoy. And I don't think they'll get that elsewhere as well. We also talked about some other really important stories from the week. Um, We did a deep dive into the um, independent restaurants and their fight for stimulus money and what the independent restaurant coalition, what, what that might mean for the future of of the restaurant industry and the food system at large to have a new lobbying coalition that could potentially be lobbying for policies that would be helpful for smaller farmers and other food producers. Pretty impressive. It was super exciting to have the Pulitzer Prize winning Kim Severson on on the show. And she introduced an article around the ability for hydroponically grown produce to be labeled as organic. Uh, This is certainly something that's quite controversial. 
Obviously, there's no soil involved. So it was interesting to, to dig in there. We also talked about Deliveroo and their IPO. You know, we got into some of the issues around Deliveroo. Um, Sonali was able to share some insights from off the record conversations with some of their investors. So that that was a really fascinating conversation as well. We talked about GoPuff, which just raised $1.5 billion for its 30-minute delivery service and, and micro-fulfillment. So there were just such a wide range of topics and we hope you, you enjoy. So this is a new format for us. This is our second show and we're still learning. Our goal is to highlight a diversity of ideas and journalists. Uh, so if you are a journalist who wants to get involved, please reach out to either Louisa and I. And if you have suggestions for great journalists, let us know as well. Absolutely. So it's going to be every Friday from 7 a.m. Pacific time. This was an hour and a half, this session. We're still not sure if it's always going to be that long, but we really hope you enjoy it and look forward to hearing your feedback. Okay, well, I think I'm going to kick things off with an article that uh, we wrote for Ag Funder News, but it's also, we've had quite a bit of coverage of this company this week, and that is Eat Just, uh, the Californian alternative protein startup that used to be called Hampton Creek. They raised $200 million of growth, or it could even be late stage funding, from the Qatar Sovereign Wealth Fund and Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen. And that takes their total funding since they were founded in 2011 to over $650 million. And they're going to use the funding to build capacity for their various different products, which now include plant-based eggs, replacements in various different formats. They say they've now replaced as many as 100 million eggs with plant-based alternatives. And they're also going to be accelerating research and development of new formats on the plant-based side. But equally, they also have cell-cultured meat, cell-cultured chicken. So why does this this matter? You know, alternative protein companies are raising funds all over the place. Well, I think this, together with the historic announcement from just last November, when they were the first in the world to get regulatory approval for cell-based meat in Singapore, and they served it in a restaurant, which was also a first. Their first product was chicken nuggets, and they're still serving it there in Singapore. I have a few friends who've who've tried it. I think this and this funding round marks a real turning point for Just. When they, you know, they've had a bumpy road in many ways, you know, there was an SEC investigation that was that was dropped. There's been, you know, a little bit of controversy uh, internally. And when they first announced plans to get into cultivated meat, you know, as well as being on the plant-based side with their Just Mayo, you know, a few of us were quite a bit skeptical. You know, I wondered if it was just PR jumping on the bandwagon. You know, and there were also some unconfirmed rumors that uh, fundraising was a bit challenging last year. Obviously, it was a tricky year, that aside. But now it seems to be, you know, full steam ahead. You know, and they don't just want to do chicken and and eggs. So this week, I also uh, released a podcast interview that I did with Josh Tetrick, the founder and CEO, from a few weeks ago. So I presume that the round must have been near closing. And he emphasized the importance of rapid expansion. So, you know, they didn't just think about which technology do they have and what products can they fit that to. They really want to be replacing animals across the food system, across different food types. And so when they came to thinking about how would they replace meat, they looked into plant-based, but they decided that actually cell culturing was the route forward. So it's interesting they're developing this technology platform, you know, multiple different technology types. Apparently, it sounds like there's some research on the plant-based sites that that's translatable into the cell-cultured side. 
So it's a real turning point, and you know, it's really exciting to see how, how much they're expanding. So that's my segment for now. If people have any questions or comments, do jump in. Hey, Louisa, I will say I appreciate you bringing this up. Uh, Josh Tucker is a very interesting founder. Two things that I was super interested to hear more about. So they are considering building production in Qatar from this uh, from this investment. And they've taken other funding too so from other kind of sovereign wealth, right? I think that food security is becoming definitely a part of their investing thesis and how they present themselves, which I think is fascinating. The thing I'll say is, you know, I know an IPO is really likely probably next year. They, he's been saying for a while now that, you know, they won't be going public until they're profitable and they've been expecting to become profitable at the end of 2021. He's been saying that for a while now. But, um, you know, I, I think that will be a huge moment. I'm, I'm sure he's watching a lot of these SPACs and all of the crazy markets happening right now and is a, probably hitting his head a little bit that he hasn't been able to get it done sooner. So I'll, I'll, I'll say that. Great. Thank you. That's awesome. Extra insight. So Megan, moving on to you and, and it's related. So Megan is from Food Dive and you had a story out this week about some research that just brought out this week. Yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah. They, I had first heard Josh Tetrick mention this research a couple weeks ago at a conference. He just said offhand something about intent to purchase, uh, for cell-based meat. So I was very interested and I finally got a copy of what they had um, pulled together this week. It's interesting because in the last several years, there's been a ton of consumer research on, you know, would you buy cell-based meat? What do you think of cell-based meat? And going back to 2018, there was some research done by Cadence International that a third of consumers, only a third, would be interested in it. This research says that 7 in 10 would actually buy cell-based chicken instead of some of the chicken from animals that they buy. Very interesting. It shows that as this is less of a science experiment and more of, you know, something that more people are doing, it's getting on restaurant menus, it's getting a lot of funding, it's being talked about as the potential future of meat, more people are accepting. The thing that I found most interesting, though, is they asked these people who said that they would be willing to buy cell-based chicken or also cell-based beef, what their top reason for wanting to buy uh, the cell-based equivalent would be. And the top reason, a fifth of all consumers, said that they would buy it because there were no animals killed in order to make the meat. So this means that not only is there a market, but people know exactly what they would be getting. Meat that comes from a fermenter rather than an animal. And that is the top selling point for them. There's been a lot of talk in recent years about how much more sustainable cell-based meat is. And there was the life cycle assessment of the cell-based meat industry that was put out last month done on behalf of um, the Good Food Institute and uh, the European Animal Rights Group. And sustainability was much further down the list for reasons that people would want to buy it. So... I found it fascinating, and this really shows that when these products do come out to U.S. consumers, as long as they're rolled out as a new kind of meat or a new way of making meat instead of 
this weird high-tech thing that's been done and conceived of in a lab, there's probably going to be a lot of people who are interested for many reasons. Oh, hey, Megan, this is Kim uh, from The Times. I'm always going to argue in favor of cooking and deliciousness Mm -hmm. and what people really want to eat. And I I always find these conversations so interesting because on one hand, you have so many more people who are cooking and who are, you know, the farmer's market situation has just exploded. There, You have people who are really seeking out food that's sustainable, that's grown in the earth, that there's, you know, so there's a ton of people who also are, you know, cooking, wanting deliciousness, who really like eating. And then Uh there's this product that is made with, you know, molecular biologists and chemists and food engineers and I think there's a disconnect. I do think that people do are, are really pushing back against the industrialized food system in the way that much of the meat in this country gets produced. But I don't think that that there's going to be this this swap with this stuff. And I know people are very excited about it. And certainly everybody likes Impossible Burgers. And I, you know, just saw they had Impossible Meat at you know the Starbucks breakfast sandwiches. Like I don't doubt that there's a niche here. But I think. When those 21% of people say they want to, uh, they might try it. I think it's more about, I don't think people want meat. Maybe they, I don't know, maybe they do want like, I don't want meat, but I want meat. Maybe it's more about vegetarianism and veganism and whole food and food that's kind of delicious to cook and not just like, I want chicken nuggets, but I don't want to kill a chicken. I, I don't know, the food, you know, consumer, the consumer that everybody talks about is such a wide ranging thing in America, right? And we have this huge food dichotomies all over the place. We have a a rabid diet culture, and then we have like 64 new kinds of Oreos that everybody gets excited about. You know, it's like like we're a crazy nation when it comes to eating. So I think these products are are certainly already have a place in in popular culture of eating. But I, I think increasingly, and as we've seen through the pandemic, and as we've seen through Gen Z folks who are cooking like crazy and who are really actually good cooks and not you know, just doing like stunt cooking for Instagram. I think food, real food that's grown, I know people are going to argue with me about the real food, is is always going to be, I think, the thing that people actually put on their plate. And this this is super interesting. It's obviously making a lot of money. But, you know, it's about bioreactors and investors. And I also, just for the last thing that I want to get off on, you guys will be sorry you invited me pretty soon, but that uh, this notion that they're talking about food security as a kind of a marketing element to me. I, I can't, at this point, it's hard for me to imagine the reality of trying to eat when you're a poor nation or you're, you know, a poor person in a, uh, in this country. I don't think the solution is going to be this kind of product. And I, I find that a little, as I raise a little eyebrow, when people start talking about this is a solution to food insecurity, I'm sort of reminded of the old golden rice argument about GMOs and that whole thing. I think it's a, it's a really easy thing to to market and discuss, but in reality, on the ground, feeding hungry people, I'm not sure that the uh, uh, the fake chicken nugget is really the thing that's going to do it. Anyway, thank you very much for coming to my TED Talk. I'm going to have to 100% <laughs> agree with Kim, and I'll just add a couple points. One, what's it made of? Cell cultures need to be fed something. What's in the medium? So if you're talking about turning $100 million investment into a billion dollars in retail sales... That's a lot of substrate. That's a lot of raw materials. So if anybody wants to volunteer what the secret sauce is, I'm all ears. And the second thing is, you know, I, I call this the oligarchs diet. This is a type of technology that's really being foisted upon the consumer. 
there is no constrained demand. They're doing these surveys and who knows how they're asking the questions and what the research is, you know, how it's being geared up for, for folks. When you have a sovereign wealth fund that's based all their earnings on oil coming around saying, we're going to fix climate change by creating this, you know, designer frankenfood, I'm definitely pretty cynical. In terms of food security, if this is the Bill Gates form of food security, we should really call it what it is, and that's food imperialism. They'll be foisting this upon developing world countries and trade deals and, you know, dumping just like they do with GMO corn. So I remain very skeptical, especially considering uh, I did plenty of work with Jess when I was at Whole Foods. So thank you. This is um, Elaine at uh, Food Navigator USA. I mean, I I saw this survey too, and I I think it's, I'm kind of suspicious of some of these consumer surveys because I, I feel like because this product isn't on the market yet, you can pretty much get whatever answer you want depending on how you ask the question. So I've seen some surveys that basically say, would you eat a, a healthy, sustainable alternative to meat that's kind to animals? And, you know, predictably, you know, most people say they'd consider trying it. And then you can say, well, would you, you know, eat a Franken meat developed in a lab by people in white coats that are meddling with, uh, you know, the fundamentals of nature? And then, you know, most people say they don't want to eat it. So I think, you know, really until these products are actually on the market, you know, beyond the sort of high profile restaurant restaurant launch, it's very hard to predict how consumers um, are going to sort of feel about them. But but I actually think that cell-cultured meat could be an easier sell to consumers than some of these new microbial proteins because you can still sell it as, you know, aka, you know, uh, quote-unquote real meat, whereas, you know, if you're talking about a novel protein produced by a microbe in a fermentation tank, you know, selling bacterial protein is, is probably a much tougher sell than selling, you know, so-called real meat so I think it's just very difficult to predict until these products are actually on the market, you know, how consumers are going to respond to them. And it will all depend on how successful, successful these companies are at marketing them and positioning them. Yeah, Elaine, I think that that's a great, a great, great point. And um, you did a story this week on uh, some of the growth projections that Boston Consulting Group has for um, the, the growth of the space, and as well as cell culture meat reaching price parity, which will be a, a huge issue. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it feels like every month somebody puts out a new report predicting the imminent collapse of animal agriculture. And, uh, and you know, uh, this this week, um, the one from Boston Consulting Group and Blue Horizon has garnered you know, a fair amount of media attention and headlines about peak meat and so on. So this particular report predicted that alternative proteins, so that's plant-based, Proteins from microbes and also cell-cultured meat could account for 11% of the global protein market by 2035. And, and that was their most conservative estimate. So their most kind of wildly optimistic estimates had alt- alternative proteins capturing 22% of the market by 2035. I mean, I personally think the lower estimate is probably more likely and, and possibly even still quite optimistic because it's based on the assumption that these alternative proteins are going to match animal products on taste, texture and price pretty soon, which is, you know, not a given. And and as we've discussed, you know, I guess it also assumes that consumers will embrace all of these new proteins, which is, you know, by no means obvious. So, I mean, I, I know a lot of the headlines that I read about this report were about so-called peak meat, but I, I think one thing the report does quite well is spell out that we'll actually still see increases in animal production for some time, even as alternative proteins market share increases, because 
you know, the overall protein market is still growing. So I don't think animal agriculture is in danger of, you know, collapsing anytime soon. But I mean, on, on a purely kind of personal note, what's striking to me, and this is kind of reflecting Kim's point, I think, is that there's so much energy and investment in the food industry right now that's very narrowly focused on, you know, reverse engineering meat, dairy and eggs, you know, replicating the Western diet just without animals by kind of putting back, you know, breaking apart and putting back these kind of junk foods, if you like, molecule by molecule to create these increasingly sophisticated drop-in replacements for burgers and ice cream and pizza. And, you know, I'm a vegetarian and, you know, if this means we gradually displace industrialized animal agriculture, you know, that that's fantastic. But from a nutritional perspective, you know, many of these companies are still using a really limited toolbox, you know, extruded soy and pea or wheat protein, a bunch of starches, gums, coconut oil, methyl cellulose and so on. And, you know, nothing wrong with those things. They're often plants. But, you know, it's probably not what most consumers think about when they're asked about going on a plant-based diet, which conjures up images of brightly colored fruits and vegetables and nuts and whole grains. So I would personally just love to see the packaged food industry devote you know, the same amount of time and energy into helping consumers find more affordable and convenient ways to eat a wide array of, array of plants and phytonutrients and, and, you know, more beans, nuts, seeds, fruits, vegetables and so on. And that's just going to be a lot harder than coming up with the perfect plant-based ice cream. So that's my... Uh, yeah, yeah, no, thank you for that. And I will actually, that in my podcast with Josh Tetrick, he did say that, you know, the best way for people to replace me and have a plant-based diet is to eat the whole plants. And he said, you know, he would wish that a company would come up with a sexy bean company to make beans sexy and have people eating whole vegetables. And I would also say so another thing that concerns me is that, you know, there are developments around alternative protein in emerging markets and even in places like India, where the population are predominantly vegetarian already. And I would be worried that these meal alternatives would make their way there and then people would start eating more processed plant-based food than, they are, than they're eating today. So actually could get, you know, less healthier and have more health-related, diet-related health issues. Of- plant washing at the moment i'm getting a press release every week saying you know what a new plant-based cookie and it's like well the cookie was probably plant-based anyway (laughs) and and now you're positioning and and also there's a lot of companies that are sort of adding plant proteins to nutritional shakes and things like that as positioning as kind of snacks and drinks that you might just drink in the afternoon you know not as a meal you know giving you another 20 grams of plant protein Um, Again, nothing wrong with that, but it's just sort of adding additional protein to the diet rather than displacing any animal products. So it's not really going to make much of a difference, you know, if we're trying to fix the or shift the food system. It's just giving you another 20 grams of protein that you probably don't need. So I think, you know, there's a lot of, you know, different components to this to this trend. And some of them are welcome and some of them are just another way for, for food companies to sort of position and market things that aren't necessarily that healthy or going to sort of you know, shift the food system in a different direction. Yeah, I, finally, I'd love to hear from you because, you know, you and I have spoken about this and across Asia Pacific, there's a different expectation around technology in your food or there's different um, consumer eater uh, relationship with technology and food. So maybe you have some thoughts as well around some of these topics. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was I was late uh, when when Elaine was talking about getting press releases about everything being plant based. It was kind of reminding me about five years ago getting so many press releases about gluten free, everything that was gluten free already 
but was now advertised as certified gluten-free. So I, I do, I do see that, but in certainly in, in the kind of more developed Asian markets like Hong Kong and Singapore, it's just a different motivation for why people are choosing these things. I don't know that protein is at the top of mind in the same way that it seems to be in the U.S., where I think there's there's this like bigger protein conversation constantly. I, I so I I know that Elaine was talking about India. I don't I don't know that that majority of Indians are vegetarian. The the figure I had was actually uh, around just under 30% at, at last count and that's a that's an old fire there there aren't as many what i have obviously seen is that in certain circles in india in the the more kind of the richer socioeconomic kind of levels stratas uh, you're seeing a lot more of eating of beef which is obviously not a, a traditional kind of ingredient on the plate in India, but I think it's more that in in India there's just a lot more vegetarian food that's available all the time anyway. So meat isn't just the only thing on the plate, but certainly in for example in China, I think the the concern is definitely much more around food safety and just general nutrition, general health, not necessarily just protein. I, I don't feel like food safety and and I maybe. I, you know, maybe I'm I'm wrong, but I, I don't think that in the United States and in Europe there's this there's such a concern on food safety. I mean, would you agree with that, Danielle? I yeah. I mean, I think I wouldn't say that it's the top of mind. It's more health and taste, and then environment and safety doesn't really come up in the consumer insights work that I've been doing. It, right, exactly. And I think that what happened in China with the African swine flu. So I was actually going back to rising meat consumption that I think Elaine mentioned. I've I've been seeing some data about that too. I think there's some some interesting information about how Chinese beef consumption is actually on the rise. So in 2020 was the first time there was quite such a big rise in in specifically beef compared to pork and chicken, and that's because pork has really taken a back seat. One, because it got a lot more expensive because it was more scarce. And two, just again, because people are extremely concerned because of the African swine flu, which affected almost a, a quarter of all pigs in China. So I, I don't know. I think it's just very different motivations. I, and, and I think that also uh, in Asia, there is also the, the part about seeing food as, as trends you know, like today I was, I was, I was in a mall and there was a drink that was a latte with truffle foam. So everything is just always a very trend focused thing. And what I see a lot and what I hear a lot other than from the diehard vegetarians and vegan communities here is that it's the, you know, impossible foods is a, is a trend as well and as is beyond meat. And, and mm -hmm. so there's, there's also that aspect that I think propels the demand. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Uh, yeah. And I just wanted to build on something that was said quite a bit, you know, as far as what, what Elaine was saying, I think one of the things that we see with a lot of plant-based companies is, again, this focus on a limited number of ingredients, which isn't necessarily good for dietary health, but it's also, you know, counter to the goal of reducing climate change, right? And, you know, we if you have monocropped ingredients, right, monocropped peas, soy, that, you know, we, we might be replicating some of the, the issues that our current system has. 
um, so that there is an opportunity for using more diverse ingredients that are grown in a more diverse way um, that actually help to build soil health and soil organic matter and support farming communities. But I also wanted to turn to Chloe, who has a really interesting story on, on this front. And then um, we're going to be moving on in a little bit, but there was just so much in the plant-based space that happened this week. Chloe talking a little bit about this new company, Nourish Ingredients, that has a fermentation process for developing vegan fats. Yeah. And I know you guys wanted me to talk about this, but we, I, we already did talk about alternative protein so much. So I, I wrote a few other stories this week, so I can totally pivot. Um, I will just share sure. to your point earlier in a few points that um, I've, I've heard. I think that just going back to what we're talking about in terms of uh, meat consumption growing in Asia, you know, Japan actually consumes more beef than seafood at this point in time. And I've similarly seen the rising beef happening in China specifically because of African swine fever. That has been concerning. And I th- more and more, I'm, I, I'm really thinking about the institutions involved in these companies and what would, would mean to be going public and what means to be like c- cementing these types of things in our you know, society. Because at the end of the day, even if America barely you know, incre- increases its meat consumption right now, and right now it's been almost like flat, if not stagnating, um, and as with um, multiple, you know, developing developed countries around the Western world, but really, if it if it isn't stopping at, and and decreasing meat consumption in Asia, it really the climate impacts. Like if you look at the UN reports and projections, the climate impacts really won't be mitigated like at all. So I think that's also something just to think about in terms of how so many of these brands are marketing and and like there is this funding frenzy, but like what does that funding frenzy really mean? And I think you know I think the the startup I wrote about this week, which uh, was backed by Lee Cushing's Horizon Ventures, and they don't make a lot of investments, which is why I think it was it's worth a few minutes of time to discuss. You know, it, I think it just is a great example of these foods and these venture-backed products are so, so ultra-processed to begin with, which is why they keep having to create new startups and fund new things and new technologies to be able to fix ingredient issues that are arising, right? I mean, obviously, there aren't the whole, there aren't ingredient issues and, and fat binding issues with, you know, whole plants and beans, right? So I really appreciate that. That's part of the conversation already. So, uh, you know, Nourish Ingredients is a fermentation platform that is specifically focused on vegan fats um, that are more accessible. They're not using coconut oil or palm oil. And the kind of idea is when it's commercialized, it'd be healthier, more readily accessible than some of the other ingredients that are commonly used right now, like Beyond, for example, uses canola oil. Um, so there's definitely health concerns to contend with that, I don't know if these really will end up being healthy. I think it's something huge to watch. And again, it, these are continuing to be highly processed. Um, I will say though, since we've been talking a lot about the funding, and there has been this obviously just massive gold rush, uh, folks seeing plant-based and alternative proteins as like the last frontier of investing. Right? It, that's obviously super problematic for so many reasons. From you know just the amount of time we have left in this decade to really make changes in our food system and how it really has to be figured out in these next few years and how much of a distraction it really could be. But I think it's important to talk about this because Horizons is one of the few firms that's really doing early stage startup investments, and that is important because these there are moon type moonshot type technologies that are still being proven that do lack funding in in these earlier stage areas. And if this is going to be part of the solution, which all these institutions backing these companies, unfortunately, just seems like it's going to be something we have to contend with going forward. It seems like now these earlier stage startups are getting crowded out because while there is a massive amount of funding pouring into the alternative protein space, there's like 3 billion in the past year alone, 
most of the money is really from like the Black Rocks and the Sequoias of the world, all these like bigger institutions that are suddenly drawn to this idea of being, you know, in on this hot new craze and the profit that they're going to see with it, right? So all of a sudden, like it's going to a lot of these later stage startups that are way closer to an exit or an acquisition or an IPO and the earlier stage ones are getting crowded out. And so if this is going to be taking up so much capital, if this is going to be taking up so much energy and time and even discussion in a conversation like this, you know, I think we all just have to think about that. You know, I'm really focused on trying to, I'm grappling with this right now when I'm writing my book and just like the distraction and how we just don't have enough time for distractions. Lots of different threads we can pull on or we can move on. I also will say um, something that Earl mentioned earlier about lab-grown meat really stuck with me. There are huge issues in terms of uh, the scaffolding, the substrates. They really haven't figured this stuff out yet. Also, they haven't really figured out the bovine fetal like serum replacements yet. On top of that, I've also recently heard that a lot of these lab-grown alternatives use a lot of antibiotics. And there's, I don't have to talk about antibiotic resistance here because I'm sure a lot of folks know and it won't take up more time. Um, but there's a lot of continual questions. And for me, when I think about lab-grown, and I will say just this ingredient startup could be for lab-grown, it could be for plant-based, it could be non-GMO, it could be GMO. They have lots of different prototypes coming out. But for lab-grown, I kind of see the future maybe, the future I kind of think is maybe most likely is that like this, because it's so expensive to, to replicate and make just because of how expensive bioreactors are. I think it'll probably end up being like, you know, an ingredient in processed foods. I think maybe it'll be like a 20% lab-grown chicken sausage with the rest plant kind of like what Adele's is doing now. I think that maybe makes most sense economically, but I think we'll see. And I'm, <laughs> I'll eventually try it. I'm, I'm working through my thoughts, but. <laughs> um, just, I'm just going to say on the, the antibiotics, I don't believe that's actually something that would be used in commercial scale production. It's more what people are using in the laboratory. Um, so I think that's something that may be a misnomer, but to my understanding is the most expensive aspect is the growth factors. So some of the things like IGF-1 and, they're like a thousands of dollars per gram. Bioreactors are expensive, but I think it's some of the elements in the growth media that you know have have to come down by massive orders of magnitude in order to make this commercially viable. And um, I mean, IGF one is a good example. I think that you know I was speaking to a company last week, and, and that's something like thirteen thousand dollars a gram, which is obviously not something that is going to work on a a commercial scale. So I think that's where there's so much kind of time and energy investment at the moment, trying to bring the cost down of some of these recombinant proteins and growth factors that are used in the growth medium, or maybe even finding other models where you don't need these things. I mean, you can produce all of them through microbial fermentation, but it's still super expensive. Well, actually, I do know that there are some companies that are really focusing on getting the cost of the growth medium down. I've spoken oh, yeah, with yeah. Uh, Future Meat Technologies, and they actually have found a way to reuse their growth medium. Yes. They also have taken out all of the animal-derived ingredients. Sure. You know, I mean, that's what all of them are doing, isn't it? I mean, right. That's, that's, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, eat just, and from my understanding, there is a little bit of the uh, fetal bovine serum in what was approved in Singapore, but they are working on getting new approval that does not include that at all yeah i mean to make this viable i mean all of the companies have to have an sbf fbs free medium because it defeats the purpose in the first place if you're avoiding animals and then you're using uh animal products so yeah right great thank thank you thank you both so much so i'm just going to quickly reset the room for people that have joined us we are the food and tech connect club a collaboration between ag funder and food and tech connect to host 
hopefully meaningful discussions about our food system here on Clubhouse. And today we have our Future Food News Review. It's going to be every Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific time. And we're featuring the leading journalists in our space. We're super lucky to have them all here discussing their top headlines of the week. So now I'm going to move over to the wonderful Kate Cox from The Counter. She has a really interesting story to tell us about what farmers are planting in lieu of crops for restaurants. So Kate, take it away. Hey, how, hey thanks everybody. I must say I'm quite impressed with Clubhouse. I'm just going to say that. It makes me feel incredibly old, but it seems to be working. So this is cool. And it's nice to hear all of your voices. So yeah, this week I am sharing a piece that we published at the counter yesterday by our contributing writer, Leila Nargi, who, who talked to farmers across the country as they're sort of in the middle of peak planting season, which is about right now, and was about right now last year when the pandemic sort of sent supply chains or began to send supply chains into a tailspin. And that was right around this time. Um, Farmers are thinking much differently this year about what to put in the ground. As we know, last year, many farmers already had their crops planted for the season, and Mother Nature is not on our timeline. Uh, so there's really no going back. Once you've got plants in the ground, you're going to grow them. And that's one of the reasons that we ended up seeing farmers having to plow crops under or give away product or sell things for cents on the dollar instead of several dollars a pound. This year, what was really interesting in this piece is that farmers are kind of going back to basics. And that that really means something very distinct for certain kinds of growers. If they were running a CSA or had strong restaurant relationships in the past or were growing specialty items for high-end chefs, that's over for this year. Many of the people who may have been growing, let's say, you know, a, a Carolina Reaper pepper or edible flowers or something boutique and high-end for a hotel, specialty microgreens, herbs, that kind of thing. Those folks are doing sort of more cautious planting this year. So we had a, a grower in California who had been growing jicama. And actually, my favorite line of the entire piece is, I have no jicama contracts this year. But, it, you know, it's sort of it's goodbye to things that were that required a strong relationship in a market. And even though restaurants are opening up slowly and the retail sector seems to have bounced back to some degree or at least gotten a handle on inventory issues, farmers are looking at storage crops, potatoes, carrots, onions, things that can go in a CSA box and that customers can identify immediately and know exactly what to do with. And so it's going to be an unusual year for produce, I think, everywhere in retail, in CSA boxes, specialty varieties, interesting experiments, working with seed breeders. That's not going to happen this year. It's a very cautious year for farmers. And out West in Colorado, for instance, where in addition to the pandemic, there was a really heavy frost in April and October that sent stone fruit growers into a frenzy and cost them pretty significant percentages of their of their planting season, those folks are still recovering. So they're looking at how to continue growing things in the interim while their trees and customer relationships kind of get repaired. So it's a precarious time. I think 
I think success this year for farmers might mean they sell everything in the fall and that's that. And they maybe sell a, you know, a cherry tomato medley rather than, you know, a new variety of raspberry. So it could be, it could be an interesting time at the consumer level too, in terms of what, what we get at retail level by way of variety. That is really interesting. And, and what, how do you think this will reflect on the costs of different crops? Or, you know, at the supermarket, on the supermarket shelves, potentially? Well, you know, labor is an ongoing issue, and that's a cost for farmers. But I do think given that they're a bit more conservative this year and they're not experimenting with some of the kind of crafty varietals or working with seed breeders whose product may have been more expensive, we are probably going to see somewhat stable prices. We just may be eating a whole lot more carrots, potatoes, and onions than we are golden raspberries, for instance. Well, I, this is Jen. I, I kind of wonder if, if traditional outdoor agriculture kind of goes back to those basics that you were talking about, but we've also heard a lot, and this is obviously still a really new and developing area, but we've heard a lot about seed breeding with indoor farming is getting a lot of attention. So I kind of, I wonder if there's a role for indoor ag to play in providing some of those specialty crops that maybe it's less dependent on mother nature and what happens there. And so then it becomes a mix of, uh, you know, it's sort of you, your staples sort of grown more traditionally. And then the, you know, I can't remember the name of the company now, but they have this special breed of strawberries they're making and they cost like $50 for a 15-pack, but they're supposed to be amazing. Uishi. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Microgreens, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. Microgreens, strawberries, those are the two items that we know do really well in, in vertical farm systems and that they have, you know, managed to kind of um, solve the price issue. But there's still so much they can't grow. So you make a good point. Perhaps outdoor ag has a handle on, you know, the basics and storage crops. And now we start going to, you know, the Gotham Greens of the world or the sort of smaller, smallholder farmers who already had retail relationships. I think what's really interesting is is sort of the changing nature of relationships. I mean, it's it's in a farmer's DNA to adapt. So, you know, it's not it's not a big tragedy if suddenly you're planting, you know, many more rows of potatoes than you have in the past. But what is interesting is that you might not be growing for the same people that you were growing for before. And so if some farmers pivoted to CSAs over the summer and managed to stay afloat, you know, with a small CSA business, they may be committing a whole lot more acreage this year to growing for CSAs if they weren't before. Or in the case of the farmers we talked to in Colorado, they're now growing for a food pantry because that state has given growers some grant money to grow for for food pantries and other outlets for food assistance. So some of those farmers said it's not really just what we're planting, it's that we it's that the purpose of our planting has a different focus now and our relationships are changing. It's not so much anymore that we're trying to supply the same markets that we were. Now we may be growing to fill some gaps in the food assistance program or to provide products that were formerly kind of too pricey for food pantries to take in. So for instance, raspberries and blackberries in one case, in the case of Colorado, they were growing items that wouldn't have shown up in food assistance packages before because they were too expensive, but they're able to do that now with some support from the state government in grant funding to do that. And so I think that's what's probably most compelling about the story is that 
it's the relationship that farmers have to their land is forever changing, but this has really changed who they're selling to and who they're growing for. Great. Thank you so much, Kate. Such an important story. And it sounds like it's going to have long-term implications for the future of agriculture in the, in the country. I, I think we, we just started to talk a little bit about indoor ag. And I know that Kim has a story that she wants to talk about. Um, Kim Severson, who's a reporter with the New York Times, um, about the organic certification now for indoor ag. So Kim, do you want to, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Hi. Yeah. Thank you. I was just like, oh, that's such an interesting story about the farm. I was over in the farmer area. Thank you for yeah. that. I like. I read that story. I thought that was a great story. I wrote a lot about how uh, farmers were kind of caught, really caught with you know three thousand acres of fava beans when all this shut down and no restaurants to sell it to. Uh, this story that I am, I said, trying to think a lot about how, where hydroponics or I guess indoor agriculture is in the world and 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 how it's working. And I kind of got onto this. I was talking to a, a chef in Florida who's like, you know, four months out of the five months out of the year, it's so hot there, nothing can grow. And without the vertical gardens giving the chefs their lettuce, they would be out of luck and talking about all of this. But anyway, this week, a U.S. district court in San Francisco said that the USDA can, in fact, certify hydroponic operations as organic. And this has been an ongoing fight between people who originally wrote the organic laws and 1990. And the idea was that soil and the health of that soil is really essential to the organic definition, right? Soil and organic are are uh, married. And now hydroponic growers are saying we can meet all of these applicable certification issues and we don't need to worry about the soil, but we can still be organic. And so there was a sort of a battle between the two sides of this and the Coalition for Sustainable Organics, the head of whom, by the way, used to be the head of the United Potato Growers of America, just as a side note. Uh, but this group is people who are companies that have invested a lot of money in, you know, in these strawberries and in, in uh, hydroponic lettuce growing operations. I think there's a big tomato growing operation that's about to start in Tennessee. And their argument is, look, you know, we can provide organic produce for people and they've got the price point down. And meanwhile, farmers who are trying to switch to organic on their land have to wait three years for their soil to, you know, cycle through and be approved. They, they're arguing they're at a real disadvantage financially with some of these other newer companies and that they're incredibly different categories. So it's a, it's a really interesting uh, fight between farmers who see farm as an ecosystem in which, you know, the soil matters, you know, the environment, you know, what you put in the soil matters and, and you cannot take soil out of the organic concept. And, you know, a new group of hydroponic farmers who see, you know, it's, Organic is about no synthetic fertilizers and pesticides. So it's a really interesting place that's being fought in this little small, weird rulemaking fight in, within the USDA. But I think it brings up a larger issue about what organic actually means or what people want to eat. And can this, you know, is, is the food that's coming out of some of these farms, as, uh, these hydroponic operations, is it as good as what you could get from the soil? Will there be kind of a deliciousness differentiation? Will people, will, will food, organic food grown in really good soil become kind of an elite, you know, food stuff? Uh, yeah, I just, I think it's, it's kind of a beginning point of, you know, of, of a, ch a real change in agriculture that I think ultimately might be more, at least uh, be more popular and significant in terms of how we grow food than, you know, maybe, um, you know, plant-based egg 
you know, egg substitutes at this point. So anyway, I'm just curious if people feel like they are, have you eaten a lot of hydroponically grown strawberries and like some of these new tomatoes coming out? Do you think the quality is as good? Do you think this is a, it's a kind of a low cost way to get organics ultimately into people's, a low impact way to get organics into people's into people's uh, kitchens. And does soil, is soil important to agriculture, I guess, is the big question. Anyway, that's what I've been thinking about this week. Interested in what you guys think. Kim, I love this story. Been fascinated by this sort of strange bedfellows that soil or no soil kind of personal politics debate Mm -hmm. brings to the table. And I think that's one of the most interesting things about this is that for true soil evangelists, hydroponics is anathema to everything, you know, the original organic pioneer farmers stand for. And I'm just fascinated at the depth of the divide and Mm -hmm. in the organic community about this. And I can't, I can never get enough of this story because there's no sort of easy villains. And it's really, it's just kind of a fascinating story about people and, you know, kind of ag politics and all the ethos that goes along with organics. So I was really glad to see this. I kind of wanted to chime in because I I also run an organic trade platform and I I noticed that organic is kind of having, I don't know, I I feel like it's it's almost, it's gone post-organic and it's interesting that you're you're talking about this debate between indoor ag versus soil-based ag because if, you know, there's obviously the whole discussion around regenerative agriculture and I don't know if folks are familiar with kind of veganic farming and of course biodynamic farming, there's always been fights between organic and biodynamic for so long and it felt like organic sort of won out, but if we start talking about kind of conservation and ecology and agro ecology and I, I did this really fantastic well it wasn't fantastic because of me but the I interviewed Anna LaPay who who spends her life fighting for agroecology that that's her term over regenerative farming and I mean one of the things that we're not bringing into discussion here between indoor ag and outdoor ag is is, is the climate kind of consequences right because it feels like indoor ag is meeting things like food security and nutrition needs but it's not solving the the need that we have to better live with the land and natural resources in order to mitigate climate change and so that's kind of where i feel the regenerative farming community the organic farming community the biodynamic they they have this this other part of the argument that indoor agriculture just isn't addressing mm-hmm. yeah so those are all great points and i think if we were to actually frame this as agroecology versus everyone, it would probably be more appropriate because all these other terms are really commodity forms in terms of you know creating some value in the marketplace for a particular set of techniques. So just one point there. But the other point is around the, the hydroponic. It's not labeled, so you don't really know if it's hydroponic versus soil grown. And that was the problem with the hydro-organic and why a lot of folks like myself said, you know, it's fine what they're doing, just create a separate label so there's market differentiation. And then I think my final point would be nutrient density. Once again, what's the secret sauce? What's the growth media? You can't just grow fruits and vegetables on water and air. There needs to be some sort of substrate. Is it coconut shell husks? Is it cow manure? What else is in the water? We don't know. And therefore, we don't know what the nutrient density is of the products being grown from it. That's something that, you know, Bionutrient Food Association is showing around soil health and, you know, and, you know, regenerative agriculture, agroecology, soil adds to nutrient density, whereas hydroponic 
I think you're going to see a lot more uh, tests coming out showing the stuff is nutrient deficient. It's, there's nothing to it. And also, what the heck are they growing this stuff on? This is Twilight from Civil Elites, and I've actually I've visited a strawberry opera, a large strawberry operation I won't name here, but they were growing strawberries uh, in these new waist-high systems, and it was, in fact, coconut substrate. And, you know, they're, they're essentially piping in nutrients through the water. And I asked about soil, actually. I asked the CEO, and he said, you know, that's not what our consumers care about. Our consumers care about whether they're feeding strawberries to their children and whether those strawberries are, are, are certified organic. And that's kind of where it ends. And that was two years ago. And I've been really interested to see kind of how that's shifting, right? I think that is shifting. I do think there is a rising interest on the part of consumers in the impact of soil and the, in general, the larger discussion around climate and the environmental impact of our food beyond just, is my milk going to poison my children? <laughs> but I also just wanted to say that the, uh, the hydroponic conversation is interesting to me because it, it often gets framed. And actually, when this news came out this week, my co-editors were like, this is a big deal. They're going to start certifying hydroponic food as organic. And I was like, no, actually, this has been happening for a while. This has been more about whether or not certain folks can stop this from happening. And, you know, there were big discussions within the, the NOSB, the National Organic Standards Board, I think it was a year and a half ago, something like that. So most of this conversation is about whether they can stop it. It's been happening for years. I just wanted to pipe in and say that. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right there. I think this was a, a, a an appeal against a previous uh, ruling on this. Great. So we're going to move on. I just want to remind everyone, we are recording this. We're hoping to release this in podcast format. So if everyone can mute themselves as soon as they stop speaking, just to avoid any interference and check that their mics aren't rubbing on their clothes. I think mine was earlier. So we're going to move on now to Leah Douglas from Fern. And you have a story this week about the vaccine eligibility for food system workers. So please, um, Leah. Hey, everyone. Great to be here. Really enjoying the conversation so far. So yeah, so the, the topic I wanted to talk about is a little different than uh, where we've been. So we're moving into the labor space and talking about COVID, which some folks know has been my main focus this year is um, covering pandemic's impact, particularly on uh, the workers who, you know, grow our food, ship it, process it, and so on. So, uh, you know, one thing that's obviously been top of everyone's mind the last uh, few weeks in this space is the the rollout of vaccinations to, you know, frontline workers and food system workers. And I've seen a lot of reporting on, you know, at the local level, the national level, who's eligible for the vaccines um, in the food sector, in the food sector. But I hadn't seen like a resource to to just take a glance and understand how many states have made these workers eligible. So yesterday I published a series of maps on the FERN website that is a uh, you can uh, basically select by sector and see which states have made food sector workers eligible for the vaccine. And uh, if they're not eligible now, when uh, they will be soon, which it's, it's looking like by about mid-April, we'll see um, these workers eligible in every state. This has been a really interesting topic in the last couple of months because, uh, you know, as, as folks know, uh, states have, have really shaken up their vaccine eligibility phases in sort of real time. So, uh, the CDC recommended late last year that food system workers, for the most part, be in a really early phase, usually phase 1B of every state's vaccine rollout. Uh, but as the vaccines have arrived in states, a lot of states have switched to more of an age-based criteria or have moved other 
frontline sectors up ahead. And so there's been a lot of lobbying from the industry and from worker unions to get these workers, uh, you know, reprioritized in uh, the phase out of the vaccine. So, you know, I think, I hope a helpful resource for folks who are covering this. And of course, with President Biden mandating essentially that all adults be eligible by May 1, we've seen a really rapid uh, and with more vaccine available, we've seen these timelines really uh, you know, every day it seems like more and more states are opening uh, the vaccine eligibility to all adults. Uh, so I think this is a really fascinating sort of glimpse at where we are in the pandemic. And of course, just eligibility doesn't end the pandemic for these workers. It doesn't mean every worker will be vaccinated or that access will be easy. That's for, you know, more follow-up reporting. But for now, I hope this is a helpful resource for just understanding where we are one year into the pandemic. Leah, I'm curious. So your your reporting, I mean, it's been cited by most of the major news outlets, um, John Oliver, how what what do you is the goal with with this? How do you think that it might shift the conversation with this new map that you just released? Well, I think the gap that I saw was you know uh, sort of a lot of reporting that had kind of broad statements about you know meatpacking workers are eligible in some states but not all, and I found myself wondering you know where what states you know how are these states making decisions about who is and isn't eligible. So, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, for other reporters and for, you know, other folks who are interested in what's going on with this sector right now, that it can be a way to um, to understand, you know, how many states are are prioritizing these workers. So, like, as of today, you know, most states have uh, have pushed these workers into eligibility as of today. So um, around 35 uh, states have four of five of these sectors that I'm tracking currently eligible. So I think in some ways that tells a more optimistic story than I had had been under the impression before making this map. The the coverage that I had read indicated or sort of suggested to me that many fewer states are making these workers eligible. So I think that was one interesting finding that, you know, the clear majority of states do have these workers eligible. Uh, But, you know, there's also some interesting learnings around, you know, states that are just doing age-based criteria and have essentially eliminated occupational priority for for workforces. Uh, that's not very many states, but it is happening most controversially, I think, in the food space that's happened in Florida, where, you know, of course, there's a high number of farm workers and uh, DeSantis, Governor DeSantis has has moved ahead with just an age-based uh, eligibility phase and not prioritizing occupational groups like farm workers ahead of uh, senior citizens. So I think there's some interesting learnings there. Too. At Food Dive, we've been tracking this. We published our tracker, I want to say, maybe about a month, a month and a half ago. And we're always updating it. We're focusing more on manufacturers than the farm workers, just because that is our uh, primary audience. But it's been really interesting to see all the updates coming through. We update it probably a couple times a week since there is a bigger vaccine rollout going on. And uh, it's definitely one of our top red stories so far this year. So it certainly is a useful resource. But to put it together, we had to read through every single state's uh, policies and comb through just kind of what we're doing now. It's kind of surprising to us that, you know, this wasn't spelled out anywhere. And uh, it was kind of harder information to find, especially because everybody has said through the whole pandemic that, the people in the food industry are some of the superstars that are really keeping the country going through this. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting point. You know, I've also had to comb through all those different state 
guidelines and even the state guidelines from public health departments aren't always clear. So you have to look at, you know, recent news reporting. And I mean, that this has become clear through my reporting on COVID cases and outbreaks um, all year, but just the lack of standardization, the way this information is presented by public health agencies and nationally, the fact that like, you know, journalists have to put together this information so it's easily accessible as opposed to there being some sort of federal you know, database that we could just search. You know, it's incredibly labor intensive. And I think the, the the incredible variety of how states are approaching this, you know, makes these tools necessary and also difficult to build. Thank you, Leah. You know, I think we're moving along. We it was heartbreaking to see over the last year what happened to um, food and farm workers. And it was equally heartbreaking to see the impacts of the pandemic on the restaurant industry. And Brett um, Anderson, who's joining us from the New York Times, wrote a phenomenal piece this week about the Independent Restaurant Coalition and how they fought really hard in order to secure $28.6 billion in grant relief for small restaurants and bars. So Brett would love for you to talk about that journey and, and the work you're reporting from this week. And thanks for joining us. Uh, well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed this. So, yeah, as you mentioned, Danielle, this piece is about the Independent Restaurant Coalition. And I, I first started reporting, you know, last summer, not long after this was formed. And uh, I was originally attracted by the fact that the people involved with this group really, even early on, represented a cross-section of what is ultimately you know, a fairly narrow industry, it, you know, had a lot of the heavyweights in the independent restaurant world, as well as, you know, really small operators in not in big markets. And I thought it just seemed like an indication of how how vulnerable everyone was in the independent restaurant world to the pandemic. And and so, you know, I had conversations with people about it. I, I got to the fall and was talking with my editor about the group and whether or not we would write about it. And it was, we sort of decided that it was really a political story, whether or not they were going to have any success and that that would be best left to the reporters in Washington. And so I sort of reluctantly agreed with him. But then uh, I noticed that as I spoke to restaurateurs around the country, I mean, I mainly write about restaurants and I try to make a habit of, of getting on the phone with folks, even if it's just casually around the country regularly, just so I can sort of feel like I have my ear to the ground about what's happening. And it struck me that just about everyone I spoke to would, without my mentioning it, bring up this group, the Independent Restaurant Coalition, and the meetings that they had over Zoom and how important they had become to sort of lifting up people during this, this year of, of grief and loss. And so when I finally wrote the story that appeared earlier this week, it sort of had these two layers to it. And, and in fact, uh, my colleague, my friend and colleague, Kim Severson, her and I actually talked about this phenomenon of of restaurateurs having this space to sort of openly emote and sort of feel safe being vulnerable and how that was like something that was worth continuing to talk to people about. And so ultimately, the story that ran is about this political success, which I think really does seem kind of unlikely that a lobbying group that did not exist a year ago would play a role, I think, play the lead role in securing $28.6 billion in relief money. But then I also, the story had this layer to it about how how they achieved that success 
was through that what I think is a really unique process, particularly in the world of politics, of this kind of high emotional intelligence, <laughs> where they, you know, they spent time and, and, and set aside time in their meetings to lift people up. And that had the, the, um, the result of actually creating the energy and the urgency that they needed to see this job through. You know, the aspect of it that I'd be interested to hearing from this group about is that, you know, the, the story kind of puts a marker down about the arrival of this group, this restaurant coalition that has influence in Washington. And, you know, a lot of the folks that are involved with it are vowing to, to continue, you know, to stay together and, and, to, and to really formalize themselves as a, a lobbying group and an advocacy group that can help move the needle in Washington for other issues that they care about, including issues around the food system. And, you know, to me, it seems worth continuing to watch to see how they operate and if they're able to successfully advocate for issues that a lot of independent restaurateurs have, you know, been very vocal about over the decades, particularly where it comes around, it comes to, um, you know, to farming and that kind of thing. But so that's sort of, that's, that's all I have to say about it. I, mean, I have to take questions, but I am genuinely interested to hear if anyone here thinks that it's, it's reasonable to expect that this lobbying group could be an ally in other areas of politics and food systems. Yeah. Well, I had a question. This is Jen. How do you think, just simply because, of, you know, we're talking about restaurants and there's obviously a lot of controversy around restaurants' relationship to delivery services like DoorDash and Uber Eats and everything, would you think this lobbying group might be able to exert any influence in the name of protecting restaurants over issues like that? I mean, they would say that they intend to do that, <laughs> um, you know, that they want to be they want to use this newfound influence to be able to protect restaurants from, you know, from all of its, uh, you know, all of the things that endanger their businesses, including, you know, including the delivery services. I, you know, but that wasn't something that came up as, you know, this is our next agenda item when I spoke to people. In fact, I, I, I believe that they don't, they haven't quite decided on what their next agenda item is. I think they've only just sort of decided that they, that they believe they've had a success that they need to follow up on. And, and I think the trick will be you know, finding issues that they can rally around. You know, this last year, the group has really been, I think, fighting for their own survival. And that helped in keeping people on board. Um, but, you know, in the future, if, 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 if restaurant businesses get back to operating something like normal, you know, it, we could see this group perhaps dissolve because there aren't enough people on it that see reason to, you know, to, to fight. Hi, this I'd be is really Kristen. Oh, oh sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, I'd be really curious yeah. to see how they interact with the NRA, the National Restaurant Association, and in particular in relation to the, the minimum wage or the, what they call the sub-minimum wage for restaurant workers, and whether or not that will be something that they take up or whether they care about the workers in that way. Yeah, I, the, you know, the, the, the sort of drama with the NRA was very much in the background of this. In fact, like the day before the story came out, the NRA announced it was hiring this new executive to improve communications with, with its members and made a point to say, including independent restaurants. The, you know, the, I, I did actually speak with a couple of different people in the group about, you know, about wage issues. I, 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 I do believe that a lot of restaurateurs want to 
you know, raise their wages and 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 try to to to, to fight in Washington for it. But there's not there doesn't seem to be unanimity. What I heard in the group was that. Um, people in smaller markets where the the economics are just different than they are in places like San Francisco and New York, they believe there needs to be different standards in different places. I'm just speaking for what I heard when that issue came up. This Kristen, I oh sorry, oh sorry, oh sorry. I was going to get over to Kristen because I know she hasn't spoken yet and has a lot of it covers this this um, industry quite closely. Oh, thank you. Um, hey, Brett. I'm Kristen Holly. I'm a freelance writer, and I mostly focus on restaurant tech, but I've been doing some work uh, mostly for food and wine about uh, IRC and PPP and now the the relief fund. And I think the interesting thing about IRC right now, and I, I spoke this, I think like Kevin Bayham and Camilla Marcus uh, at the very beginning. And, and like you, I heard they were very adamant about, sorry, my two-year-old is crying, uh, very adamant about advocating for the interests of independent restaurateurs above you know, the kind of NRA interests, um, which tend to be the larger companies. And I think that's evident. There's a very specific um, part of this relief grant program that is still to be implemented that requires restaurants to sign up at the moment for a DUNS number and then the SAM registration. It's just a lot of bureaucracy that is going to be required for people, for restaurant owners to actually access this relief. And the IRC is currently advocating for like the removal of that system and like it requires a notary and all kinds of crazy things for restaurants to jump through in order to receive any of the $28 billion. And I think that looking to signals like that, where they're really going granularly, granular, granularly after what affects independent restaurants versus, you know, sort of the larger stories is, is super, super interesting to me because they can advocate for like the very specific needs of a very specific industry that was that was frankly underrepresented on a national level. So um, I really enjoyed your piece, and I'm I'm really excited to watch the IRC go forward because they have it's you know it's a lot of smart people with a lot of big ideas on how to help. But I too am interested to see what happens when you know we're talking about recovery and when when the people who founded this organization get busy again with their day jobs. W- one last thing I want to just mention is that the, that the grant program hasn't you know they haven't started taking applications yet, and and so there's a lot that remains to be seen. In terms of how you know what sort of um, regulations they have built into it and stuff, but I, I agree that it's it's going to be interesting to continue to watch. Thanks for adding that, Kristen. Um, can I ask a question, Brett? It's it's regarding um, delivery drivers, and and I, I'm not familiar enough with the the laws in the U.S. on this, but are delivery drivers of food um, delivery companies considered part of these discussions and part of these groups? Because I was wondering if anybody had any thoughts on, so the Uber ruling in the UK about the gig economy, obviously very different than what's happening in the US on the regulation front, but is there any organization around those type of workers in the food industry? I know they're not directly from restaurants, but obviously they're delivering of food and they have very few protections. You know, that that delivery drivers did not come up in my reporting on this. The you know, it's possible that you know, but that this group has been considering them part of their world, but I don't I don't think that that is the case. I don't believe that that's a high priority. Okay, thanks. Could I just ask Brett quickly one question cuz I I think I thought Yeah. This- yeah. yeah, go ahead. Just a just a question about whether whether or not IRC 
dissolves or is able to keep lobbying on other sort of restaurant sector related issues. What do you think the appetite will be on the part of diners? Have we seen so much because of the pandemic that we're willing to sort of tolerate chef owners being, you know, political and and lobbying for issues outside of the survival of the sector? For instance, you know, worker or labor related issues. Is there do you think that the appetite on the part of diners has changed or will? Well, I, you know, di- diners is a big, that's a big group. <laughs> Indeed. And, and so, <laughs> I, you know, like, I, I think it really depends on, on the socioeconomic status of the diner and where they live. You know, I, I can speak to, I live in New Orleans and, and we're in a, you know, we're sort of a blue island in the middle of a very, very red place. And I know over the years from reporting here for the local paper that, you know, restaurateurs were here very reluctant to be political, even in the ways that like uh, restaurateurs are in in, on the coasts, Um, even when it comes down to like putting things on the menu about, you know, small farms and that kind of thing was seen as, you know, kind of too provocative and that it could alienate diners. And I've always sort of found I, that, you know, that stuck in my mind the entire time I was reporting on this piece about how, you know, this suggested a certain softening among independent restaurateurs to get involved in politics. But also that I think that the way that restaurateurs think about politics and think about their diners, uh, you know, to get to your question, really depends on where they live and where they're operating. And, you know, diners in 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 Denver and San Francisco and, you know, are really different than diners in Birmingham and, and in some ways in New Orleans, particularly in sort of suburban New Orleans. So I, you know, I, I don't feel equipped to be able to, I, I do think some diners are, are, are willing to, um, to pay more for their food, for instance, but I don't, you know, I, I can't pretend to know if there's enough of them to, to really, you know, to make real change here. Thanks. Thanks for that. Yeah, thank you. And talking about diners, uh, Twilight, you had a really interesting story this week about how um, junk food restaurants and and retailers are um, using TikTok influencers to to target kids. And, you know, I just I know in my own world, I I see a lot of young people on TikTok who are taking uh, following influencers there and taking what they say is truth, which is kind of scary. So would love to hear about that story. Sure, thanks. So I worked with our contributing writer, Dakota Kim, on a story this week, and it was it was really kind of spurred by the fact that we saw this, this one product come out uh, from Dunkin' Donuts, and they worked with uh, this woman, young woman, 16-year-old Charlie D'Amelio, who's a dancer turned TikTok influencer, and she has 108 million followers, which is hard for me to even wrap my brain around. But they developed drink, a coffee drink that has like multiple pumps of caramel swirled in. And it's the large is apparently has 68 grams of sugar. And so we started thinking about, you know, what does this mean in the big picture? What are the the other companies doing? And Dakota had some good conversations with it with, about it with experts. And yeah, you know, Doritos, McDonald's, Wendy's, Chipotle, a lot of them are doing this kind of thing. They're working with uh, music artists and, and other folks who've just kind of popped up on this platform. I think for 
those of us who are newer to TikTok, it's hard to imagine uh, how quickly this has really taken shape and how many young people are are on the platform. But, you know, it's interesting, particularly right now, because adolescents are so much more likely to respond to and take advice from and listen to their peers. And I think because of the pandemic, especially, their peers are increasingly on their phone. They were already on their phone, but even more so now, right? When kids haven't been able to hang out with each other, they are just, you know, spending all of their time interacting on TikTok and other platforms like it. So, so this is kind of a, a big deal right now. And uh, there isn't, there's not a lot, well, really, there's no regulation or very little regulation of it. There's, there are, the FTC put out guidelines, but they're voluntary, and the the brands have to they are supposed to in some way disclose that it's sponsorship or that it's an ad but that's not happening consistently from what we can tell and it's also it's it's a really big deal in terms of who these companies are targeting demographically and we know that you know youth of color are more vulnerable to diet related diseases. And we also know we Dakota spoke with Jennifer Harris uh, from the Rudd Center, and she pointed to some important research that, that shows that Black and Latinx youth are targeted at a much higher rate. So, so it's, it's ultimately a food justice issue as well as being, you know, a marketing issue. And, you know, there are, there are a lot of folks who think that Congress should should start looking at junk food and processed food and foods like the the Charlie, this beverage, uh, similar to the way they do with tobacco and alcohol, which is, you know, really uh, requiring FTC to take a harder stance on it. So, yeah, that's kind of the, that's the story. And we'll, we'll probably continue to follow similar stories related to TikTok because we do feel like it's an important platform to be watching right now in terms of this stuff. Hey, this is Kim. This story, I love that story so much. And you know, it's kind of like a story that's as, as old as uh, food marketing. Um, as I remember when, you'll remember the big fights they had over keeping sugary cereal ads off of kids' cartoon time and Saturday morning. And, you know, there was also like a fight to keep the Oreos used to have this program they'd give to schools a counting game. And you counted by taking the, like, from 10 to 1 by taking the Oreos off of the little counting board. Like, it's just like, like some, you see somebody going like, here's how we'll get kids to count. If they eat nine Oreos, they've counted to nine. It was just, you know, so this is like, that was like checkers. And this is like 3D chess version of food marketing, right? So it's, it's absolutely fascinating, but it's the same, you know, push to get, you know, kids to buy stuff that is probably not healthy. And now you also have the um, added dimension of the social justice issue, which resonates now more than it did probably when they were just trying to fight cereal on, on TV ads. I find it interesting. I also have a 13-year-old kid who is one of Charlie's followers. And, you know, we talk a lot about it. And, you know, she's really super sophisticated about what how this all works and how they get money and that it's sponsoring. I'm sure some of this stuff does see, sink into their head like any marketing or advertising does, but it is also a super savvy group of young people right now and, and, and who do care about these issues. And I think you can make the argument that 
you know, this is targeting kids who maybe, you know, aren't as able as you are to make other food choices. And what do you think about that? And very, it seems to me that they are more immune to this perhaps than a generation or two earlier than them. However, I'm sure that there are a lot of those super caramel uh, iced coffee drinks getting sold to kids just because of this, you know. But so it's a fascinating story that, you know, it's as, as old as food marketing. It's just this new kind of modern twist on it. So I loved that story. I give it five stars. Love the story. Yeah, I was going to say that one of the experts we spoke to, you know, she pointed out that that talking to kids about how much sugar in the is in the beverage is not in any way going to move the dial. But as you say, like talking to them about whether or not they're being deceived, <laughs> whether or not companies are being, you know, on the level about it, that that's the best way to, yeah, to kind of seed this level of media literacy, they, they call it, with young people, which makes a lot of sense to me that that will, and we don't really know how much that will impact their food choices, but even if it gets them start starting to think about it in a different way, that seems important. Great. Thank you so much. Just a reminder to people in the audience, if you do want to ask any questions of the journalists, go to Food Tech Connect. Dot club and you can post on the chat there. Thank you so much, Twilight. So now moving on to Kristen, and you wanted to talk about Reuters article, which talked about Chipotle investing in a driverless delivery startup, Neuro. Hi, Hi. sorry. Yes, sorry about that. I did. And then I also, um, Danielle asked me to mention, I want to talk about Deliveroo also. And I'm actually going to start with Deliveroo because we were talking about some delivery drivers. But Deliveroo, and I'll, I'll preface this by saying I'm not an expert uh, in the UK stock market, but and I'm sure some of you are. But Deliveroo is uh, based in the UK delivery company, and they are going to IPO in early April. And the valuation at that time could be as high as 12, 12 billion US, like 8.8 .8 billion pounds. And CNBC says that that would make it the largest tech IPO in Europe this year and the largest in Britain for a decade. And then uh, some recent coverage ooh, said that some investment banks are actually choosing to pass on the opportunity to invest in Deliveroo because of concerns over um, labor and the gig economy. And Sonali, I know you mentioned the, the Uber ruling in the UK. Interestingly, Uber Eats drivers um, are exempt from that. So uh, the ruling for Uber was that they had to um, offer some benefits, including minimum wage and pension to uh, Uber, um, Uber drivers. And uh, the, for some reason, and I haven't been able to dig into it this week yet, um, Uber Eats couriers were exempted from, exempt from that. And I think that there's a larger question, obviously, about uh, delivery drivers and how they are, one, categorized, two, treated. And it looks like the European market is reacting to that, I would say, more than the, the US market. And I think it's it's very interesting um, to look at what's happening in Europe versus what's happening in the U.S. because Grubhub, which is one of the major delivery companies in the U.S., was is being acquired, hasn't quite closed yet, by a European company that in Europe, all of its drivers are considered employees. So there's a lot of different models that are playing out. And obviously, what we've seen in California with Prop 22, it's very clear that delivery companies in the U.S. are willing to throw a lot of money and influence into creating favorable, favorable conditions for them to operate. And so Deliveroo is really interesting for me to watch because it is poised to be such a large public debut, but also 
the major investors are, are saying that they are not interested in supporting what could perhaps be a tenuous labor model. Um, so I found that more interesting than, uh, than Chipotle. So I'm going to switch to that today. Kristen, just to, to jump on that, because Deliveroo actually has a huge presence here in Hong Kong. And it's really interesting, having been here a long time, watching what, what they did to the market. Because basically before they arrived, before F- Food Panda came first, but then Deliveroo showed up and now it's basically them w- warring against each other. But before that, we had a delivery system here where basically restaurant groups employed their own drivers. And it's really sad what's ended up happening because all the drivers then had to basically switch to Deliveroo where they were no longer employees and had none of the protection. And then the other thing I wanted to share is it was an off-the-record conversation, but one of the investors in Deliveroo told me that he had serious concerns about the company because the company was not profitable, as, as many of these big big kind of businesses are not, but they also had the biggest growth and the biggest kind of revenue, sorry, the biggest revenue growth over the year of COVID because obviously everyone's ordering food in all their markets and yet they still weren't profitable with that. So the concern is when is profitability coming? And if there were labor issues on top of that, it would just it just what is the viability of these models? I mean, of course, customers want convenience, and it, you could argue that restaurants were very much helped by these companies because they were shut for so long. But overall, you know, is are these profitable businesses? Right. I mean, and they they haven't they haven't really proven to be much um, in the U.S. At least uh, Uber's CEO is still saying profitability this year, at least for Uber Eats. DoorDash had that one profitable quarter last year, right at the height of you know, the, the pandemic era um, restrictions. But I think like the bigger thing that I, I think about when I think about the profit, profitability and the future is, you know, so much of third party food delivery as we know it, as it's grown over the last year is hinged on, you know, it, it's very precarious, right? It's based on these employment models that are now being looked at, you know, across national governments. It's based on these relationships with restaurants where uh, municipalities are stepping in to, to cap commissions and you know it's it's all feels feel and and they're still not making money even under conditions that are favorable for them. So I have some guesses about where it's all going to go. But in the meantime, I mean you know DoorDash still hit like an eighty billion dollar valuation at one point. I think it's settled closer to around fifty now, but that's still a massive, massive valuation for a business that is still deeply in the red. Um, so I'm very interested to see how the labor conversation will shape the future of investing in these businesses and whether government action will force them to change the way they operate in order to just survive and hopefully treat their drivers, couriers, employees, and restaurant partners better than they have been. Kristen, what's your guess? You said you have some guesses about where it's going. I think that big delivery is going to be for big restaurant companies. And I think that you're going to start to see, I mean, you've already seen so much emergence of smaller local-based organizations or restaurants banding together. But basically, I think that post-pandemic, the the local, the kind of local businesses that we all love to support will start to seek more economically friendly ways for them to operate. And big companies like Uber and DoorDash will continue to throw favorable terms towards, you know, McDonald's and the bigger, the bigger brands that we know get the favorable terms. And then I guess the other part of it is that, you know, DoorDash is investing in 
actually like creating food. Uh, they bought a salad robot that they can put into any business, right? So you're a DoorDash customer, you're a pizzeria, you want to offer salads. There's an autonomous like salad vending machine that you can conceivably license through DoorDash and add a bunch of things to your menu. So I, I think that big delivery for big restaurants, independent restaurants um, will start to come up with more solutions and realize that like the terms are just untenable. But I don't know. I don't know if that's going to play out in the short term or the long term. In, in Hong Kong, it's actually the opposite. Um, it's super interesting because the bigger restaurant groups that have, let's say, 25 to plus restaurants in the city, they actually just invest in creating their own delivery because they don't want to pay the commissions. Um, and then the smaller one-off two, two or three restaurants, they just don't have the capacity to deliver, to, to arrange delivery on their own. So they they are more kind of limited and, and end up going on food, Panda or Deliveroo. Thanks so much for uh, bringing this story, Kristen. And being here in the UK, I use Deliveroo. And something that's concerning around this is that all customers have been emailed and they've got an allocation to invest in the IPO. So they've got a, a certain amount of that IPO, which um, is reserved for customers. And so hopefully more of this will um, educate, you know, the consumers <laughs> maybe not to invest in the IPO. So thanks so much for that. So moving on, that's Danielle. Interesting. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Kristen. And excited to continue following this story. Speaking of delivery, Jen, would love for you to share the story that Spoon published this week about GoPuff raising $1.5 billion to do a 30-minute delivery and kind of what the future of micro-fulfillment looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. And um, great just shares all around today. This has been really enjoyable. So yeah, GoPuff is, uh, it's part of this trend of these sort of niche delivery services, I'll call them, but they've raised $1.5 billion this week. Um, and their whole pitch is that they operate these micro-fulfillment centers, which are, are, they're kind of like dark convenience stores. You know, they're not going to carry a whole, the whole inventory that a major grocery would, but they're, they'll carry the items that are most relevant based on what part of the city they're in. And they can supply these deliveries to people in 30 minutes or less, they say, and they're, they're doing it 24 hours a day. And it's, you know, it's food items, it's alcohol, it's pet supplies. And so they are one of a few different companies that have these micro fulfillment companies that have been raising money recently. Um, they're one in Berlin called Gorillas that raised $290 million. And then Fridge No More, Wheezy, Jiffy. So there's there's a lot of talk around these micro-fulfillment places. It brings up some questions for me. One is that it seems like these this particular... Well, let me back up. One, there's just been a ton of online grocery in the last year. I mean, for obvious reasons, given that, uh, you know, with just stay-at-home orders and, you know, people wanting to go out into public less. Um, so we've, we've, we've seen over the last about 12 months, just the numbers for online grocery continuing to go up. And I think what's started to come out of this are also a lot of specialized online grocery services. So got your Instacarts and, you know, I know that also DoorDash and Uber are also getting into grocery. But then you've got these very specialized services like GoPuff or the ones that focus on food rescue, like Imperfect Foods. And it 
it seems like there is a lot of competition in this space right now. And that is sort of existing alongside this question of, well, vaccines are starting to roll out. People are starting to go back out. You know, how long term is this idea of buying your groceries online or will people just return to the store in droves? So I guess I, I sort of I'm fascinated by by this area because I, I just wonder, you know, a company like GoPuff that is basically it's bringing tech to this idea of what maybe some of us who live in New York have been doing for years, which is just getting delivery from your bodega at two in the morning or something. But it's doing that on a large scale. So I'm curious to see if this is going to be a trend that sticks around or if this is one of the more sort of trend in grocery that's happening kind of in reaction to the pandemic from the last year. So I feel like the jury's still out for me. So I'd be really curious what other people think about this. Daryl, would love to hear from you as someone who's been in the grocery business for quite some time. Well, I haven't been in the grocery business as long as grocery delivery has. I think A&P was doing that 100 years ago. So I, I think this is just an example of the Silicon Valley tech industry, this whole notion of disrupting industries and extracting value from either side of the supply chain. And I, I get that there's a lot of these niche services. You know, I question Imperfect Foods in terms of how much they're diverting, you know, food away from like food banks or, you know, food recovery efforts and, you know, adding a you know, a markup to it. And, you know, I do appreciate, you know, their assortment and their creativity. But just in general, I'm so skeptical about the whole food delivery sector because of my direct experiences. I launched Instacart at Whole Foods and all the things I warned everybody about, you know, what was their cost? How much are they extracting from retail? How much are they extracting from the brands? How are they keeping the data? You know, how are they marketing the data? You know, the fact that Instacart is threatening to now go into fulfillment and actually compete with all their customers. And then you have all these other services and they have labor issues. And, you know, they've helped underwrite Prop 22, which is creating, you know, you know, it's really creating precarity as uh, status quo uh, in this, this sector for, for workers. You know, and hopefully, you know, the PRO Act could pass through the Senate to overturn that nonsense or else we're all going to have Prop 22s in all our states for gig workers, you know, these delivery workers. So, you know, um, once again, I just think it's a method of extraction. I think it actually filled a niche, filled a need for now. But there's no reason why that type of service couldn't be rolled up under some sort of public utility. You know, we couldn't create like del del delivery co-ops, more platform co-ops. I know there's a bunch of worker co-ops who are working on that sort of stuff. And, you know, look at a small group of shareholders and executives who are reaping huge rewards and really just creating a ton of exploitation in the supply chain. So, Pardon me if <laughs> I'm a bit skeptical about it. I, I see the value throughout the pandemic, but it was also quite opportunistic for these folks. And really, if you like what they've done with food delivery, wait till you see what they do with alternative meats. Thanks for those thoughts, Errol. Um, really great to hear those. And thank you, Jen, for introducing that. So now we'll move on to Kathy Irway, who has had some amazing coverage over the past year on the impact of the pandemic on Chinatown restaurants. And this week, he wanted to introduce an article about what it's like to be a landlord in Chinatown right now. Hey, thank you. Yeah, and thanks, everyone. It's been a really interesting discussion this week. I love what everyone's doing. And I, I saw uh, Kim's tweet, and I just wanted to respond by <laughs> when you're speculating about people wanting to cook more at home with ingredients that felt like wholesome rather than like cell cultured cellular ag meat or something like that. I, I would say 
probably yes a lot of people want to cook some like pristine looking ingredients but there's a heck of a lot of it of foods i think that people will gladly eat in a restaurant but do not want to take home and cook so like seafood is like a huge category like for some reason in america but anyway like i happen to report or a couple months ago about calamari, which is like sort of one of those things uh, for the publication Taste. But getting back to this series that I've been doing with Grub Street, I feel like last week when we were talking about this, I was like a little raw and like with with like the shootings in Atlanta and everything. And, uh, you know, so thank you so much for having me back. I've been doing like this series of conversations with various stakeholders in Chinatown food businesses. So the first was with a second generation co-owner of a grocery business called Deluxe Food Market on Mont Street. And um, the second was with a second generation Chinatown landlord who who is a landlord for many food businesses as well as uh, other retail as well as residential buildings and I think we're just trying to show like real, raw and honest reflections over the last year. Not, you know, we hear a lot from chefs or restaurant owners. So, you know, but that's one part of the equation. So that's really the goal. You know, we're not trying to make anyone seem like definitive or even representative, but it's good to hear more voices and kind of show their whole sort of meandering accounting of the last year. I feel like I've I've, um, seen a lot more reporting on this lately because uh, like when I was sort of first reporting on the decline in business in Chinatown and also a rise in anti-Asian harassment and incidents a year ago for Grub Street and sort of focus on the organizations that had been formed because of it and various different efforts from individuals like Grace Young, a cookbook author, to combat it, there was this sense of you know, when I spoke to a lot of people, we there was a sense of like a need to speak up for this community, for Chinatown and for like elders. And, and a lot of people were saying that there was a cultural sense of taboo that they felt about asking for help and or airing grievances or even speaking about being hurt. And um, we did some reporting on this actually for Self-Evident, which is a podcast that I host where even like doctors were saying, you know, they had patients come in who looked like they'd been beaten up and they refused to say so what happened. So there's a lot of stigma and hurt in this community. And I think that what's changed over the last year, and I think that, I I think I was trying to say this last week, but it came out as like a sort of frustration on the part of like so many people who have been maybe reporting on this, but not seeing enough like improvement is that there's a sense that people are being more vocal. And I think there's there's a growing awareness that the, these problems are, are occurring and they need to they, they need to be denounced, they need to take action about them. Like right now, I was just sort of tuning into this Washington Post Live, like combating anti-Asian racism panel right now that's going on. You know, so like there's been a lot more discussion around it. And um, I, I think that it all ties into, you know, how do we pr- how do we also support uh, the people who are the various different stakeholders who make up the fabric of a community that is very much part of America. So, you know, I think that uh, it's good. Like I'm seeing like tentatively, like my subject uh, who was the landlord said he's, it's been like the, the most horrible year ever, but at the same time, he's, he's never felt more invigorated and inspired by the work that's going on within the community. And, 
So hopefully that's leading us somewhere positive in the future. You know, and this is like, you know, coming out of also a change in government where our president no longer insists adamantly on calling coronavirus the China virus or something. Uh, We have, I think even like Meghan McCain apologized for doing or saying something about that. Although it was kind of weird. She like the next day, like made it sound like there was some sort of meritocracy to being a host on The View that only one Asian American had ever achieved so far. So that was kind of weird. But anyway, a lot of these discussions are coming into the mainstream. And so I'm grateful for that. I'm also grateful that Grub Street wants to publish these interviews. And I'm hoping to share another one in the series soon. Yeah, I'm curious what what the response has been and and why Grub Street wants to help lead this conversation. You know, how how they feel like it in, in the food. I think that it's really just, I don't know that there was any desire to lead. I wouldn't say that anyone, I don't, I don't think we're leading it. I think that it was more just like, okay, we hear a lot from chefs and business owners. And that's just one small piece. Like you can't run a business. In fact, like when I first had, um, you know, was one of my first, but the first person I talked to for the series was like, you know, we, we don't have, like, if our employees are, are afraid to come in, we don't have a business. It's actually challenging to try to reach the people who are not managers, but I think it's really important at the same time. So, yeah, that was just the, that was the general feeling behind doing it. Great. Thank you so much for that. Okay, mm-hmm. moving on to Errol. And you had an article this week in Forbes about how New York is revolutionizing food policy. Awesome. Thank you. And I honestly, I first just want to get off the to start by just uh, keeping the three King Supers clerks who were killed during the, the massacre in Boulder in mind. Just that there were grocery workers have been through so much this year with the pandemic, and with anti-masker shoppers and with supply chain disruptions, scheduling disruptions, fighting about hazard pay, getting lost, uh, laid off. By retailers who don't want to pay hazard pay and and now this and it's just it's just horrifying so my heart goes out to them and i just wanted to keep them in our thoughts today I, i'm excited about this policy piece here because it gets us out of the conversation of food as a commodity and along the lines of food sovereignty food as a right and new york city obviously my hometown i don't live there now and so this is like i'm a fanboy from afar uh, really interested in what they're doing. This really huge project involving over 300 stakeholders coordinated by the office of the mayor. And it has five overarching goals, food access, uh, worker protection and good jobs and economic opportunities, modern, efficient infrastructure and supply chain, sustainability uh, from production all the way through disposal and education, communication, even administrative support to actually implement this. So there's an operational component, which is meaningful to me as I've been operating for so long. New York has huge food insecurity, uh, food access, food apartheid issues in terms of you know, over 1.6 million New Yorkers uh, experiencing that. Um, it's also, as many of you know who live there, just an incredibly diverse uh, place with a really distributed and all over the place food system. There's, there's no real central coordination. You know, obviously, there's varying communities, uh, you know, ethnic communities, uh, neighborhoods, there's Supermarket change, convenience stores, you know, restaurants and bars that have survived COVID, et cetera. The huge policy plan in terms of the distribution infrastructure, storage, packing, packing, processing, production. I mean, there's a ton of food manufacturing, mostly small scale. 
in New York. And it talks a bit about that. And it actually, it builds off of, I feel what Brooklyn, Brooklyn Borough President, New York City mayoral candidate, Eric Adams actually put together a, a really interesting white paper about his own vision for the Brooklyn food system. But to me, the highlight of the food policy planner are um, my friends from the Good Food Purchasing Program have been working in New York now. The Good Food Purchasing Program is a NGO that has this five-tiered framework for supply chain. And for me, it's close to my heart, not only because you know, we've worked on it here in Austin, but it's, it's the public sector version of what a, a Whole Foods or a natural grocer's like a, you know, a you know, high-quality retail chain does for the private sector. But, you know, as a food, as a commodity and at you know, varying levels of cost, whereas Good Food Purchasing Program works with public institutions to implement this in public contracts, mandating certain purchasing standards, mandating certain production standards for growers and manufacturers and along the lines of five values, including local economies, uh, nutrient density, valued workforce, environmental sustainability, and so New York ends up being by far the largest uh, public procurement effort enrolled in GFP, as I think New York is among the largest procurement uh, groups in, in the country after, I think, DOD and like maybe DOJ. Uh, so it's a massive, massive uh, project. And this could have tremendously beneficial positive effects on the supply chain across the board, knowing that there's this much volume of, of purchasing. And I'm, I'm very much more of a demand consumer focused person in terms of, you know, I'm, I'm a retailer, right? So a lot of what we talk about on the, the food movement, the food industry is supply side, farmer this, production that, you know, growing standards, growing techniques, this or that, blah, blah, blah. My take on it is the, you know, consumer bats last, the demand will actually drive the changes. And what GFPP does is institutionalize that, but in the public sector and outside of the frame of, of the marketplace, uh, which I find very compelling. And that's where I think the conversation for me goes into food sovereignty. Local communities uh, democratically uh, participating in managing uh, the food system. And I think it, it really builds towards the first real sense I've gotten of any large area of this country, whether municipality or state or city, et cetera, articulating a right to food. And as the UNFAO says, the right to food um, is Realize when every man, woman, and child, alone or in community with others, has the physical and economic access at all times to adequate food or means for its procurement, um, which is huge. But for me, uh, philosophically, it also puts the rest the, the this bullshit illusion of individual responsibility, which you know a lot of food CEOs like to talk about and food activists. And it's always about body shaming. It's always about shaming poor people. Instead, this policy plan articulates how complex the socioeconomic relationships and supply chains are that actually enable and empower folks to ask, access good food, especially in light of, you know, the collapse in supply chain in COVID-19. And, you know, Kate's uh, wonderful article in the counter talking at the farm level illustrates one side of that. I've experienced that firsthand in terms of distribution and retail and category management and skew rationalization and just-in-time inventory and all these, like, you know, crazy practices that have disempowered and disabled folks uh, from accessing good food, in addition to the layoffs um, and the collapse of the economy and, you know, the social distancing and metering in stores, I mean, et cetera. So this policy plan, I think, is a model uh, for other cities to start looking at. And I know there's a ton of conversation like Johns Hopkins and Michigan State University, like all, you know, these uh, New York City, Hunter College, uh, NYU, Columbia, CUNY, have all these amazing food policy programs that are actively looking at that to, to see, you know, what works and what matters. And it's great to see New York taking a leadership role 
uh, on this uh, for the 21st century. I just want to plug my, uh, my podcast, uh, The Checkout. We rolled out a, an episode today with an interview about Amazon. So if you really want to understand racial capitalism and the sort of two-tiered way that the supply chain, you know, beyond just the whole Deliveroo, you know, DoorDash thing, but like second largest employer in the U.S. is, is handling supply chain, you know, besides all the pee bottle nonsense, I, I invite you to check out the interview on the Checkout Radio this week. Thank you. Thanks so much, Errol. I think it's such an important story and and such an important model. And I'm curious, because New York is such a big market, do you think that it could have any wider implications for the food system, for the food industry that yeah, we'll see in other ways aside from policy? Yeah, I mean, demand side, it has the potential to change production practices. So what we were talking about earlier, agroecology, you know, in terms of the ecosystem you know, organic certification, regenerative practices, fair labor in terms of, you know, how farms actually pay their workers. You know, farm workers in most states are exempt from, you know, National Labor Relations Act, Wagner Act, right? You know, New York is trying to address that. California has been trying to address that. Animal welfare in terms of, you know, factory farms and meat plants. And the GFPP uh, standards actually address all that. Now, the policy plan doesn't cover private sector purchasing, right? It only covers public sector, which still is huge. Imagine if, you know, more private sector actors, food businesses, retailers, bars actually started adopting these types of purchasing standards. That is how you will change the food system. Non-GMO and organic didn't pop into the marketplace because a bunch of farmers said so. And like, oh, we're going to grow this way. Hopefully we could find some markets. It's no, there was demand. There was consumer demand. There were retailers, there were outlets, there was food service. You know, you have to create a supply chain, and that's what this does. But once again, out of the marketplace, it does it out of the private sector. It does it in a public sector approach, which for me makes it more compelling because you know there's an entitlement to it. People will get used to this, and it'll also it'll pop up in school lunches. It'll pop up in you know public institutions, hospitals, universities, colleges, etc. And, and people will get used to it and demand it and continue to want more of that. And that I think is how you're going to see. It's not just about New York, as you ask. It's about the fact that it, it'll affect the ecosystem of, of farms and suppliers on a very vast scale that are supplying those contracts. Yeah. Was there anyone else that wanted to jump in on this story? I just want to reiterate that Earl has just such an amazing depth of knowledge from 25 years in the grocery industry. Plus, and maybe that's even low. And the replicability here and, and really can't be under overstated i think potential can't really can't be overstated i think because it it could be i, I had a friend reach out from reading errol's piece who um, is trying to put together a coalition of um, nonprofit soup kitchens in berkeley and use this as a model but it could also be as big as you know doj why couldn't it be i mean the usda i mean there's so many broader policy implications that this really could impact um and so uh, errol if you maybe could could speak to also, how this could impact like the workers um, in the supply chains, um, and and what that what, what what could be we've done there. I think that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, there really isn't anybody in the country, retailer, you know, public uh, institution that really addresses labor in the supply chain. The best that I've ever experienced is we, we had the Agricultural Justice Project for for a little while for a couple small brands, but the vast majority of production on farms, uh, and, you know, dairy, um, and you should check out the Migrant Justice podcast we did with the checkout last week. 
manufacturing, obviously meet, you know, the, you know, what Leah Douglas has documented at this, this year with COVID-19. Um, nobody really talks about that. And outside of federal labor reforms, which are sorely needed, you know, obviously the PRO Act and also uh, looking at farm worker labor, you know, this is the best approach that I've seen, you know, in, in sort of a private sector NGO framework, but impacting folks looking at like, oh, wow, how are people being treated? What are they being paid? So if we start paying them a fair wage, what does that do to our cost of goods? Oh, it's negligible. Oh, who knew? Maybe we could do this more, right? And that's what I'm hoping that folks will see. As the studies that have come out, I think it was a Tufts or a UMass study a couple of years ago showed that, you know, just paying farmers like a living wage and a farm workers, excuse me, farm workers, a living wage for produce in like Western Massachusetts added less than 2% to the farm gate price. And so if you amortize that 2% across the rest of the supply chain, it's not even a rounding error. Nobody will notice it. Yet it makes a tremendous difference in the livelihoods uh, and life, quality of life, family life, community life for uh, farm workers. And I, I'm hoping that's one of the key takeaways here uh, as much as any of the other aspects of the, uh, the GFPP. And I would go, go to GFPP, Center for Good Food Purchasing, and check out their standards and some of their success stories, but also the fact that it was formulated and implemented by community groups and labor groups first in LA. So it really comes from this grassroots effort. It's not the sort of top-down bureaucratic approach. It's very accessible and very democratic in its out outlook. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing this important story. And thank you to all of you. You've been listening to Future Food with me, Louisa Boa-Taylor. For news and insights on the food tech and ag tech industries, go to agfundernews.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review.